This is The Resilient Life, where we believe that every human will struggle in this life. Our challenge is to struggle well. I'm Ryan Mannion. I lost my brother to war, my mom to cancer, and I'm the daughter of a retired Marine. I'm also a wife, mom, author, and president of one of the nation's leading veteran service organizations. Join me and some incredible guests as we explore the value of struggling well through life's inevitable challenges. Welcome to The Resilient Life. We are so excited to bring you our first guest on The Resilient Life podcast. Make sure that you like and subscribe to hear all of our content as soon as it hits. And today, we are so happy to announce our first guest, Alex Gorski, the chairman of the board and chief executive officer for Johnson & Johnson. I want to start with just a little bit from his background. Under Alex's leadership, Johnson & Johnson continues to be one of the world's most exceptional corporations and is currently the number one pharmaceutical company on Fortune Magazine's list of the world's most admired companies. A longtime advocate of diversity and inclusion and supporter of veterans issues, Alex is an active member of the Business Roundtable and the Business Council and sits on the board of directors of our very own Travis Manning Foundation and IBM. After completing his undergraduate education at the United States Military Academy at West Point, Alex served six years in the Army. Welcome to the Resilient Life Podcast, Alex. Hey, Ryan, it's awesome to be with you here today, and I'm really honored to uh, be here for your inaugural podcast. Yes, we are so happy to have you. And for our listening audience, um, I did the calculations last night. And I realized that you and I have actually known each other for 28 years, which seems crazy. Um, Wow. Yeah. And I so what it really means is that you've seen the evolution of Ryan Mannion over the last 28 years. Um, I I do think I remember uh, about a 12 year old Ryan Mannion coming over to uh, babysit not only our son, but I think some nieces and nephews at the time. And uh, I I think that was about the first time we met. Yes, yes. Um, In all seriousness, uh, what that really means is that I've had the privilege to know you for a very long time as a friend and most importantly, as a mentor. And there's so much that I want to dive into here today, but I want to start with one thing. And it's something that my dad and I talk about often when we talk about who Alex Gorski is. And it's something that I think really defines you as an individual. It's so basic yet so important. You are quite possibly the most responsive person that I've ever met. And you always stand behind your word. If you send Alex Gorski an email, he writes you back. If Alex Gorski says, hey, follow up with me, and they follow up with you, they hear back from you. And it's something so small, but I think it speaks to your leadership as an individual, how you've grown. And I also think it speaks to the idea of the simple things, how important the little things are um, as you build your character. It's something that I've tried to build in my own life and make sure that I'm paying attention to the little things. And I don't know, do, do you do you realize that you're that way? Do you hear that from other people? Well, Ryan, again, thank you very much. And, and I gotta tell you, uh, it's been incredibly rewarding for me 
over these past 20 some years, you know, watching you develop as a leader, watch the Travis Mannion Foundation just explode into, you know, such an incredibly meaningful and impactful organization. Uh, I couldn't be prouder of uh, having, you know, been part of that in some small way and continue to be so today. Uh, so really being able to have this conversation is just a great way to, you know, continue to share that. And look, you know, for me, Ryan, I, and, but I would say it's probably this way for a lot of people. Um, I've always thought that while the big things, and I use quotes that sometimes we uh, get measured by or that the, it tends to lead in the headline, um, those tend to fade over time. But where I think we always have the most impact as leaders, as parents, as friends, are the little things that we do to make a difference each and every day. Look, 10, 15, or 20 years from now, nobody's going to remember the numbers or the percents or they're this or that. But they're going to remember when you took a moment to tell somebody, hey, great job. I really appreciated what you did. Have you ever thought about maybe doing this or following up? You know, and for me, it's those many small acts that really have the most impact for anyone as a leader. And, uh, and look, and even in getting back to somebody, I remember what it was like, you know, to be a sales representative. I remember what it was like when I was, you know, first lieutenant, you'd, you'd, you'd write a memo or you'd you know, send something forward and nobody, you wouldn't hear back from anybody. You just wanted to say, hey, you know, do I matter? Just acknowledge that I exist out there. And, you know, what I found is that if, when people send something to me, I realize that because of my role and position, they've usually put a lot of effort and time and thinking into it, maybe even spell checked it a couple times. And, you know, when they push that button, when they hear back, it's just an acknowledgement that, yes, I matter, he cares. And that is so important, I think, in uh, the tone that you can set in an organization and, uh, and I think the impact that you can ultimately have. So I always try to do that and I do take pride in it. Sometimes I'm better than others, uh, you know, given the, uh, the volume of emails and the things that I deal with on a daily basis. Uh, but I think it's so important to let people know that, yes, you do matter and I care and I'm going to follow up with you. I love it. And I couldn't agree more. Um, So I can tell you aside personally how exciting it is to be sitting down with the CEO of Johnson & Johnson during this challenging time in our country, in our world, frankly. And you are so uniquely positioned as the leader of our country's response to COVID. Can you speak to us about that a little bit and address the vaccine specifically and J&J's role with that? Sure. But let me first say that, um, you know, Ryan, I could never have imagined, uh, certainly when I was in the military and getting ready to start with Johnson and Johnson uh, that I would ever find myself not only in this role, uh, but leading the company at a time, you know, where we're facing perhaps the greatest pandemic that the world has ever faced in terms of number of people, you know, impacted, uh, perhaps one of the most impactful times regarding uh, the state of the economy around the world, or, or frankly, even more broadly society. And, um, and it's something that on one hand is quite daunting and quite challenging uh, and certainly humbling. But on the other hand, 
uh, I recognize that uh, there's probably never been a more important time for a company like Johnson & Johnson and for leaders across our organization to really make a difference for people, for patients, for families around the world. And um, look, like many people, I, I can remember late December, early January, first hearing uh, about the possibility of the COVID-19 virus. And um, being in uh, you know, a company that has a very significant presence in infectious disease and has worked in areas such as HIV, Ebola, tuberculosis, and other areas, um, you know, we were um, familiar uh, with some of the previous uh, potential pandemic, like the SARS uh, virus. And uh, very early on, you know, our scientists began having some discussions. And, uh, and I remember very clearly in, in mid-January uh, when we received uh, the first report uh, that basically outlined some of the, uh, the sequencing uh, information uh, regarding the DNA and the gene, genotype of the uh, COVID-19 virus. And, um, and we, had had, we had been working in the vaccines area for about a decade. And uh, you know, we had had some wins. We had had some areas, frankly, that didn't turn out the way that we wanted. But we had some really good core technologies that we had applied in other areas that I had mentioned, uh, like Ebola in Africa and, and even an HIV vaccine that's currently under development. And so our scientists, knowing the potential threat of something like a COVID-19 and knowing that we in fact had some technologies and vaccines that we could combine, begin quickly working. And literally within a matter of weeks, they were able to put together some of the first what we call candidates uh, to be investigated to see if they may actually work in animal models and in humans. Uh, and, uh, and that's what they began doing right away. And, uh, and it was by February, we knew that uh, we had a realistic opportunity and chance uh, to produce a vaccine that was safe, that was effective, and that was at scale, uh, you know, to, uh, to really make a difference around the world. So when you speak to that, what sort of leadership approach have you taken, not just during this time, but within your company, 135,000 people across the world, everyone is spread out and we're in this crucial time. Do you shift strategies? Do you shift styles of how you operate as a company? Um, how, how does that all work? Well, look, I, I think as a leader, you always have got to be flexible. You've always got to be agile and adjusting your leadership style for the situation. I mean, I think the days of saying, well, this is the way that I'm going to approach it, regardless, you're not going to be very effective. Uh, if, frankly, if your feet are in stone and your head will be in as well. And so, you know, but one of the uh, philosophies fundamentally that was formed for me back at my time at the academy and as a junior military officer was the concept of mission first and people always. And, uh, and that's exactly the kind of approach we took here is that we knew very early on at this outbreak that we had a mission and, and it was primarily to ensure that the patients, the consumers, the surgeons and doctors, nurses around the world who depend on our pharmaceutical products, our devices, our consumer products, that they could continue to count on us. And in fact, very early on in the pandemic, we saw demand for Tylenol go through the roof as people were stockpiling and preparing for the worst. 
We saw the same happen with some of our pharmaceutical med medications as people were, you might say, stuffing the pantry to ensure that they and their family, you know, would be protected. And, uh, and so that was mission one. Uh, after that, of course, it was making sure that we were doing everything we could to accelerate the development of vaccines that I mentioned earlier. You know, in this case, a vaccine would normally take five or perhaps seven years to go through the early discovery and development process. And in a matter of weeks, our scientists were able to take this platform. So think of it almost as a, as a common cold virus that we had used in some other vaccines. And what we do is we snip out, if, if you think of this virus almost as a measuring tape, we go to, let's say, inch number six to number 12, and we cut it out and we insert that of the active COVID-19 virus that's non-replicating, so that in effect, it tricks your body into thinking it's a common cold virus that takes it, but then it recognizes the COVID-19 virus, so it begins producing antibodies, which ultimately give you protection. They were doing that within a matter of weeks. It's amazing technology, it's biology, it's chemistry. And then of course, in this case, it also takes engineering because you've got to start scaling up the production and the manufacturing to have enough vaccine that would actually make a difference. And, and that's a bit like a, what I would call, think of making sourdough bread. And it's that in initial batch that you're going to make. Well, we've got to make not only that first loaf, but we've got to make a billion loaves. In doing the technology transfer, ensuring high quality compliance at every single step along the way is critical, again, to getting a safe, effective vaccine available at scale. And so our scientists and our researchers began doing that. But as we all know, none of those things can happen if you don't have incredibly committed, you know, bright, engaged employees who actually make that happen. And so while doing those things, we had to say, look, what, what steps should we be taking to protect our own employees? How can we ensure that they're safe? And look, throughout this entire uh, pandemic now for almost five or six months, you know, while we have about 150,000 employees, almost a third of them have continued to work every day. They're going into the factory to you know, make that monoclonal antibody, to make that next knee, to make that next Band-Aid or batch of Tylenol, or they're going into our laboratories, conducting those, those trials, doing the assays uh, so that we can ensure that the development of our medication continues. So making sure that you know, they felt that they were safe, that we were going to take care of them, making sure that we were providing them with the tools that they needed, making sure that our employees who had to work from home had the resources, had video, had audio, uh, and were connected, making sure that we were communicating. You know, another major premise of mine in leadership is you got to communicate, communicate, and communicate. And more than ever, people today want authentic, real-time, talk, discussion. They don't just want a talking head. They don't just want to read an email. They just don't want to hear the business speak, but they want to hear really what's on your mind. And so that's something else that we tried to do. So really it's, it's mission first. It's people always. It's making sure that we are getting everything out there to take care of patients and consumers who are depending on us while working on a vaccine and making sure that our employees had all the tools, the support, and frankly, they knew that we had their back and we're gonna take care of them through this very challenging time. I love that, mission first, people always. And I think that that also speaks to 
some of the qualities that you possess. I was actually listening to you and um, General McChrystal did a talk a few weeks ago. And there was something that you said during that talk that I loved. You talked about your leadership style and, and I'm paraphrasing, but you said something about this idea of, you know, my success is the sum of all parts. It's all of these people. And it's so true for any organization that you're only as great as the people that, that you're with and, and the people that support what, what you're doing. And I think that that's so important. And I wonder, where did you learn that? Did, was that once you got to Johnson and Johnson or was that back in your military career? Was that your time at West Point or was it learned before that? Where did you start to learn this idea of how important the people that are around you are in accomplishing a mission? Well, uh, you know, what I would say, Ryan, is that it, I think who we are as leaders fundamentally is who we are as people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes we have this ideal in our mind that, you know, we're, we go to work or we put on our uniform and we walk out and suddenly we become somebody else. And immediately where the you know, lights go on, music plays and, you know, you're a leader. And uh, I don't buy that. I buy it's who we are as a person. And, and for me, frankly, it was growing up one of six children in a family uh, and having older brothers and sisters that, uh, you know, were going to hold me accountable and, and teach me and having younger brothers that looked up to me and, uh, you know, expected me to take care of them uh, in certain times. It was my parents, you know, providing an environment where they gave us a ton of responsibility. Uh, and, uh, and frankly, they, they let us fall down from time to time and make a mistake. Uh, and then we had to pick ourselves back up. And, but what we always knew is we ultimately, even when, you know, we did something wrong, we had their love, we had their support, you know, we knew that we were going to have to face them. Uh, but that, you know, they were, they were there to, uh, to, you know, take care of us. And, and so a lot of those fundamental values, those fundamental approaches I try to take in my job today. And look, as a, in a company like Johnson and Johnson, where we have, three of the largest sector organizations in pharmaceuticals and devices and consumer. If you look at our global footprint, the number of countries that we're in around the world, our products, our services touch probably between a billion and a billion and a half people every day around the world. There is no way you can do that as one person. It takes a group of incredibly talented, experienced, caring, value-based and driven leaders to keep all that going. And I know that I am only as good as the people sitting around my table. And, um, and, and, and so look, I, I learned that in the military, there's no way that I alone was going to be the best platoon leader, but it was going to be making sure that the relationships that I built with the soldiers that I had responsibility for, with the non-commissioned officers that I work with, my various responsibilities in Johnson and Johnson. But I'm a huge believer that a true leader is someone who can take a diverse group of people who don't all think and look and talk and sound alike, because if we do, we probably don't need that many people in the room. It'd be a lot easier just for one person to make the decision. But when you can bring that kind of environment or create that kind of an environment, bring those different perspectives to bear and bring out the best in those people, 
where they feel they can speak up and speak out, where, you know, they're not going to worry about each and every ref's word, but you, you help them and you help the team take one plus one plus one, and it adds up to six or seven rather than just three. That's what leadership is really all about. And it's certainly something that I try to do today. And and, and particularly in areas is where the technology, where the science is so deep, making sure that you've got experts in those areas and that where, you're, again, you ultimately you ensure they've got the resources and, and the kind of, uh, you know, other support that they need along the way. To me, that's the, that's the role of a true leader. And, and I, I think every stage of my life, whether in my family, my time in the military, my time in various roles at Johnson & Johnson, has contributed to that. And, and never have I seen it more important than in a time like this where things are happening so quickly, uh, where uh, so much is depending on, uh, on us, on, uh, on our teams, uh, and all happening real time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, you touch on family and that's something that is wildly important to me. And I know to you as well. I think that's why, you know, our families are closely connected because we understand and appreciate the importance of family. Um, you know, you, you dealt with some loss during the pandemic. Uh, your father, a retired two-star general, passed away just recently. Can you talk to us a little bit about first your dad, who was an incredible individual, and and talk to us about how you're handling that loss. Um, it's I've often thought during this time, as I've watched people who have lost their loved ones to COVID-19 or from other ailments, um, when when I lost my brother and when I lost my mom, one of the things that was so incredibly healing for me was the support and being around people and having people there to to help us grieve. And it's such an isolating time right now. And I'd love for you to talk through that experience, talk a little bit more about your dad. Well, you're right, Ryan. Uh, look, I was incredibly parent to have two remarkable parents. Uh, you know, my, my mom and dad uh, were both really special people, uh, you know, both sons and daughters of immigrants, uh, you know, basically came from really, you know, uh, difficult or challenging backgrounds, certainly loved at home, but uh, without much in their pockets, as you might say, and, uh, you know, married for over 50 years and, you know, we lost my mother uh, a little more than 15 years ago, and uh, she was a special education teacher. And uh, just, you know, if you ever met my mother, uh, people would always say if you spoke to her for five minutes, you were her friend for life. And she just had that uncanny ability to connect with somebody, you know, at a very heartfelt level and to um, make it feel as though she was your mom. And and in fact, for many of my friends and family, they would call her mom uh, because that's just the way that you felt around her. And, and my father, uh, look, we were very fortunate. He was also uh, a very special, very special man. Um, when he and my mother, uh, after they got married, uh, he actually ended up uh, quitting school and he enlisted in the army. And this was during the Korean War. Uh, they identified that he was quickly, you know, officer potential. So he went to OCS, was then deployed over to Korea. 
I came back, spent a couple more years in the active duty, and then decided to uh, to get out and uh, went back to school, got his degree, and and worked as a uh, as a sales representative for Gerber Baby Food. His father was a grocer, had a corner grocery shop, so he knew that business, and that's how he started. And then, you know, over the next thirty-five or forty years, he actually stayed in the Army Reserve and had a full-time career. And he also stayed at Gerber Products, where he worked his way up the infamous corporate ladder. And um, and look, I would I thought it that everybody, or I thought it was natural for you know a parent you know, like my father. Once a month, he would put his uniform on and uh, he would go do his service. And in the summer, he would take his two week block to you know go do his in the summer training. And um, and I can you know remember talking to him about the military, which was a big inspiration for me, to, you know, to go to the academy and and to serve my country. Uh, and, and frankly, I thought that was an expectation. You know, uh, majority of my brothers ended up serving their country one way or another, and um, and so it was a, it was definitely an important role model. And at the same time, through his corporate career. I can remember sitting around the dinner table where he would come home and talk about various products that Gerber's had for infants and for toddlers and about uh, whether or not they should expand into the teenage audience or stick to their core principles. So in effect, it was a little bit like getting lessons in leadership, but also getting a mini MBA just sitting around our dining room table, you know, over dinner. And we, and we were never allowed just to say nothing when they asked us what was going on that day. You always had to have something to talk about and have an opinion. And as you can imagine, with six children, with 17 years between the youngest and oldest, there were a lot of opinions. And, uh, and so you, you, uh, you, you had to really work to get your point of view across and uh, and make sure that you were heard, you know, over uh, and through the noise of everybody else. But the um, the environment that they created in our family, there were always high expectations for us. Um, I can remember very early on, I was, I was a middle child, uh, where they basically said, look, there is nothing that you can't do. If you are committed, if you work hard enough, uh, and you really dedicate yourself uh, to something, there's nothing that you can't do, nothing that you can't be. And I think, you know, perhaps one of the greatest testaments uh, to my parents is the fact that all six children uh, still love each other, still are very closely connected. Uh, we spend all the major holidays together. And, uh, and you're right, it was a very sad day in February of this year when, you know, my father, uh, after waking up in the morning and, you know, he was 88, uh, generally, a, you know, very good health, uh, had dealt with some issues, but nothing major, uh, went to a family business meeting where he was very engaged, very outspoken, uh, went to the gym. Uh, to work out and uh, spend about, you know, 90 minutes in the pool uh, doing his exercises and went home to make himself dinner and poured himself a glass of wine and collapsed in his kitchen. And uh, so while we were very sad uh, to get that call and to see him pass, um, I don't think you could have designed a better and maybe more appropriate way and to think that it was just at the beginning of COVID-19, which I know would have been a real challenge for him. My father was a very social person. And, uh, and so we miss him dearly. And, uh, and unfortunately we couldn't have his memorial service 
as we had hoped to on Memorial Day. That was always his favorite holiday because of what it stands for, but it's also the beginning of the summer and always a time of anticipation and families coming together. Uh, but we're going to do it next year because we want to make sure that he gets the memorial that uh, he so deserves by the life that he led and the great example that he set for all of us. Yes, your your dad was, um, I only met him a few times, but he was an incredible character and, and so full of life. And um, I love how you're, you're not saying it didn't happen. You're saying it's going to happen next Memorial Day. Um, and I love that that was his favorite holiday. And, and that kind of leads me into um, some other stuff that I want to talk about. And and that's your connection, not only to the military, but to your work and with the Travis Manning Foundation. And for those that don't know, the Travis Manning Foundation is a veteran serving organization that started after the loss of my brother, First Lieutenant Travis Mannion, who was killed in Iraq in 2007, Alex knew Travis. As I said, we've known each other for many years. And as our organization started to grow um, and we started to mature and professionalize, we had to form a board. And you were one of the first people that were top of mind in helping us to grow and to move forward. And you've seen the evolution of what we're doing. You've been a big part of making that happen. And I'd love for you to talk about not just the Travis Mannion Foundation in general, but the idea of how we need to make sure that we're not only supporting the military, but the organizations that are out there providing services to our veterans and, and to our active duty service members. Yeah, Ryan, look, I think that's such an important topic. And uh, look here too, I wish I could have uh, said that the way we got connected and the way we were able to build this relationship through so many years and in effect become almost family was all due to a great strategy. But as with many things in life, it was literally by accident. I can remember meeting your father uh, when we worked together, you know, many years ago, earlier in our careers at Johnson and Johnson and uh, getting to know you, your mom, your brother, you know, spending time together also at holidays and in times like that. And um, in, in the tremendous role, frankly, that um, certainly Travis played. I can remember, you know, going down to the Naval Academy when our son and a lot of his friends were playing lacrosse and would go down for lacrosse camp and Travis and his friends would come in and, you know, they just, they were such a great role model for our son and many of the others in that room. And, you know, the fact that they would come in and spend time with, you know, these boys who were many years younger, it just meant the world to them. And I remember uh, I, I saw the early hints of Travis's leadership even then. Uh, but uh, then along the way of, uh, you know, him uh, going to high school at LaSalle and then later at the Naval Academy, uh, very early on, it was clear to me uh, that Travis was going to make uh, not only a great officer, but was going to be a great leader uh, and a great man uh, in, throughout his life. The way that uh, your parents uh, had raised him, the, the impact that you had had growing up so close to siblings, uh, that was clear. And, and so when uh, that tragic call came, and actually I think you called me, uh, informing me of Travis's death, uh, oh, it was devastating. 
I, I remember it like it was yesterday. And, uh, and, and that whole, you know, next week, you know, or so where we were, we came together as your Doylestown extended family. Uh, you know, we, we laughed, we cried, we grieved and, and went through that experience. Uh, but I remember so clearly the, the commitment and the dedication of your mom saying, Hey, we need to make sure that people never, ever forget the commitment and the leadership that Travis demonstrated day in and day out. And how do we keep that spirit alive and make it something much bigger, have much greater impact, uh, and take and, and, and make sure that we're doing everything we can to take care of veterans and their family members going forward. And, um, and, and out of that, you know, simple statement, uh, you know, to see uh, how far the Travis Manion organization has gone has just been amazing. And, uh, and look, it, it didn't get there right away. I remember the very first meeting we had uh, in the room together with the board that you had assembled and uh, with your mother being there and, you know, trying to really focus in on what the core objectives of this organization should be. You know, we couldn't be everything to everybody but we certainly had to be big enough and bold enough uh, so that you could actually have an impact. And, um, and we had good debates. We had good arguments. And I remember the further challenges of how big did we want to become? And could we actually get that big? And, uh, you know, the dreaming. Uh, but, you know, it's to, to watch um, the organization grow, uh, to see the level of professionalism, but most importantly, the level of impact. Uh, and again, and just making a difference on hundreds of thousands of people's lives, those who have served their family members, they're, you know, the people that care about them, the outreach to the communities, the character does matter programs, which I just think is so critical. If we can touch lives during that critical time, when unfortunately the role models of today, you know, don't reflect the character that we would always like and having, you know, veterans go in to you know, from all different kinds of backgrounds, representing all different segments of American society and be able to go in and stand up and talk about, you know, the importance of things like duty and honor and country, of, of things like, you know, being principled, uh, living by your word, being a role model to, you know, young, very influential minds. Boy, you can have such a difference. Uh, and so, look, I think it's incumbent upon all of us who've been blessed, who have the opportunity to be in roles like the role that I have, uh, that can help access networks, that can make connections, uh, that can help find resources, that it's our responsibility to give back. And, and I have a particular commitment to people who have served in the military and the families that support them. Uh, they've made an incredible sacrifice, especially over the last several decades where you know, many, many of my peers who stayed in for an entire career, if you add up the number of years of deployment and again, sacrifice uh, that they have made, uh, there's no way that we or I could be doing what I'm doing in corporate America and making differences around the world if they weren't providing that security for us uh, and, and frankly, the ability to operate the way, the, the way that we do in the United States and more broadly in the world. And, and I think it starts with, you know, building these, the things that we stand for with the Travis Mannion Foundation. 
So, um, look, and it's been a family sport for us. My wife has been all in, as you know, uh, Pat, who's also was a very close friend of your mom, Janet, and I know has also worked closely with you, has been a very active in missions, as well as, uh, you know, supporting um, memorials in your mother's name. And, uh, and I'm my our son and our uh, my brothers and sisters and nieces and nephews uh, have also supported, you know, various events. And uh, I can tell you, all of us are incredibly proud when I put on my Travis Mannion Foundation T-shirt uh, and, uh, you know, and go out and do things and, and try to make a difference. And, uh, and I'm also incredibly proud of you, Ryan, and the great work that you've done in uh, leading this organization to where it is today. Well, I really appreciate that. And, you know, and I think it speaks to we talk about, as you said, the, the foundation was born not by me not by my dad. It was, it was born by my mom. She was the brainchild. She was the advocate. She was pushing forward. And I always say, you know, this was a labor of love for her, but she had a mission and she had a passion and she had a desire to make something happen. And when people will turn to my dad and I and say, Oh, you great job and everything you've done with the Travis Manning Foundation. You know, we jumped on the bandwagon after my mom had already put those pieces into place. And she really took something and she took this idea of how you not only create the legacy for one individual, but that Travis's name represents this generation of men and women who have gone out to serve and who come back still wanting to serve. And so everything we do at the foundation is about providing them those opportunities to keep serving. But the whole idea is that it was a family memorial fund. It was extended family and friends that made us, you know, when people talk about, well, how did you do it? Did you get a, uh, a put a, t- a strategic plan together on how you were going to start the foundation? And, and it's, it's just like you said, no, we sat around, we talked about our passions, we talked about what we wanted to do and how we wanted to make a difference. And then we organically went out there and we did it. And I think that's the beauty of what we encompass as an organization. And I, I love that those are our roots, that we came not with this idea of prescribed of we are going to do this and we are going to go grow this big and this is how we're going to do it. At first, it was just like it was passion. It was just all passion from all of us. And, and I love that. And I don't know that I actually understood the idea of service until after Travis was killed. And I have found how incredibly important service is, not just to the the greater community, but to individuals themselves. And and anything we can do to drive that forward, I think is super important. Um, well, Ryan, you know, just, just to build on that, I mean, more and more what we find at Johnson & Johnson is the number one driver of employee commitment and frankly, in being attracted to the organization is having a sense of purpose and feeling part of something bigger than yourself. And, and so I think that not only is it this generation, I think it's gonna be the next several generations realize that yes, you know, we, we, we need to make enough in our lives so that you know, we can get by and there's certain uh, things that we want to task that we want to get done, but really having a purpose, knowing that you're making a difference to me, 
that's how you truly become part of a much broader community. And, and there are so many important lessons in that, I think, for our society, for our country, and for each generation. And, um, and so, I, I'm a, again, I'm a, I'm a strong proponent. And I think the, the more that we can build that, and I know it's certainly something that we try and do at Johnson & Johnson. In fact, I think over 90% of our employees give back to their communities or participate in some way. And so, I don't know if it's a chicken or an egg. If we attract people who tend to be that way or once they get here, they're they believe in it and they go back and do it. Uh, but I think more and more that's going to be the expectation. And uh, I think that's a really positive development. Absolutely. And I'd like to give a shout out to Johnson & Johnson because we have seen the direct benefit of your employees who are so engaged in the work we do at Travis Manning Foundation. The most incredible volunteers who are out there, who are giving of their time, who are working with underprivileged youth, who are planning events, who are doing service projects alongside us. It's its really been, you guys have set a corporate model that we use when we go out and talk to other corporate uh, partners about how you can engage with employees because it is, I've said it to you before, it's the perfect case study of how Johnson & Johnson is out there pushing that model of community service. Um, okay, so... I want to thank you so much for giving us this time. And I have one final question to ask you. It's a question that we are going to ask every guest as they sign out from the Resilient Life podcast. And, you know, it's all about resiliency. It's all about how you move forward through challenging times. And what I want to know from you is what does living a resilient life look like? What does that look like to you? Well, I think, you know, in a phrase, it's taking care of yourself. Uh, you know, all too often, uh, as we go through life, we're pulled in so many different directions and there's so many priorities, whether it's personal, professional, that we can, we can spend so much time and effort on all those things that we forget about the importance of taking care of ourselves. And... What I mean by that is to have the kind of resilience, the grit, the perseverance, the sustainability that we need, especially during times like this right now in our country and around the world, making sure that you're, you're taking those moments, that you're creating the daily rituals to take care of yourself, your own health. And by the way, that's physical health. That's the way we sleep, the way we eat, the way we, we move, we exercise, but it's our mental health. It's making sure that we're getting enough sleep, that we're taking time to, to reflect, okay, and to re-energize ourselves. And for some people, that could be yoga, that could be taking a walk, that could be reading. Uh, but we all, with, there's one, there's, there's many lessons from COVID-19, but I think one important one is the importance of being healthy as we go through life and we encounter these kind of events. Uh, because the the healthier we are from a physical, from a mental, from a spiritual, from an emotional point of view, the more resilient we're going to be, the more grit we're going to have. And frankly, the more capable we are of, of not only getting through these periods, but of leading others, inspiring others along the way. Uh, so make that time every day. Uh, you'll, you'll be better, you'll feel better, you'll do better. Uh, and, uh, and it will have a huge impact on the people and the community around you as well. 
I can think of no better time for probably any of us right now than to hear the message, take care of yourself, invest in yourself right now. Um, I love that. Alex, I can't thank you enough for coming on the Resilient Life podcast and coming out as our first guest. Uh, It's been an incredible uh, journey to watch you grow as a leader. And like I said, I can't thank you enough for your mentorship over the years. And I'm so excited for everyone to hear everything that you have to say and to take these tidbits and lessons and, and to understand that, again, one of the things I take away from everything you said today is, is you could have never imagined you would be sitting where you are today, but it didn't start with that first job you took at J&J. It was when you were a child, it was the lessons and the fundamentals you were putting into place that led you uh, to where you are today. And and again, getting back to that idea of being big in the little things, uh, so important. Thank you so much, Alex. Thank you, Ryan. Have a great day, best of luck. And I couldn't be more proud of you, your leadership, your father, your mother, Travis, and the impact that this foundation is just having on so many people around the country. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you so very much for tuning in to our first episode of the Resilient Life Podcast. I am so excited for the journey ahead. We have some incredible guests along the way, and I can't wait for each and every one of you to listen each week as we bring you new inspiring stories of incredible individuals. Make sure that you like and share and spread the word about the Resilient Life Podcast.